University of Colorado. Roger Martinez, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, is using immersive virtual reality tools to recreate worlds that no longer exist. The Immersive Global Middle Ages, funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities Institute for Advanced Topics in the Digital Humanities, will transport viewers back in time to experience the 5th through 15th centuries. Thanks so much for joining us, Roger. First off, did I get that time period correct? You did, Emily, and it's really fabulous to be here with you today. Thank you so much for this opportunity to kind of visit with your listeners and to kind of participate in this ongoing See You on the Air extravaganza of great ideas <laughs> and knowledge. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah, we're just thrilled to have you. You've nailed it. So 500 to 1500 is generally what we consider the European Middle Ages. And really, and it kind of encapsulates the space between what was before and what is after. So certainly during this period of the, uh, the Middle Ages, if you ask somebody on the cobblestone street, so where do you live? What time is it? If they wouldn't say it was the Middle Ages. They probably would say, oh, I live in the year of our Lord, you know, 1323. But what it really is a, re a reference to is what came before 500? And really, it's a reference to antiquity. And antiquity is that time of uh, Greek and Roman civilization that really kind of expires around 478 when the Visigoths sack Rome and basically signals the end of the old Roman way. And then on the other side, 1500 really is this hallmark moment of when we are entering what is known as the early modern age. We refer to that in, in today's world as early modern age because lots of things are happening. It's an outcome of the Renaissance, which is this point where new ideas are taking hold, uh, new experimentations with culture and knowledge. So we can think of Leonardo da Vinci, we can think of uh, other great thinkers uh, of that time period. And then also just this opening into the new world where Europeans will encounter or conquer or subjugate the new world. So that is this kind of transitional period. And it is called that Middle Ages because primarily it's in between. And it's, it's a time of great experimentation of, of culture and also kind of fragmentation and then really reconsolidation until we see the world we see today, like the nation states that come about during the 18th century. And that kind of is a good segue into my next question is, can you tell us a little bit about what life was like for people during this time? It's a great question because one of the big mistakes that all of us make in our lives in terms of understanding the world around us, whether that's the past or the present, is we tend to anticipate and expect that people are a lot like us, right? That, yeah. you know, today's world, you know, we go to the grocery store and, you know, we do these types of things. We, you know, go get dry cleaning when we used to actually wear uh, hard pants um, before the <laughs> pandemic, <laughs> things like that. And, and it's generally not true. What, what really was like at that time period was uh, people tend to use this language of the dark ages, right? Things are are cold and there's a kind of recalcitrant Roman Catholic church and repressive society. Generally, no. Generally, uh, what we see life like at that time is 
the idea that if your father was a cobbler, a shoemaker, you would be a cobbler. That, you know, there's an intense kind of experience of religion, whether that was uh, Islam or Judaism or Christianity, a very close connection between understanding your way in the world is directly connected to the afterlife. And then some of the organizing principles of that life were kind of framed around violence and an authority. And, and this is the kind of the scary part, I think, for a lot of us, which is uh, violence was incredibly prevalent during the Middle Ages because of the fracture of the old Roman world, of the, of the legal systems and, and the application of law. And so there's this competitiveness inside of kingdoms. So you might have the Franks or the French competing against, you know, Castilians uh, in Spain for kind of territory. And, you know, these things are played out, you know, in wars. And so there's this sense of perpetual violence and kind of, a, in some ways, a, a lack of, of control over one's environment. Uh, and then I, I think the other piece that we think about during this Middle Ages period about life is um, it's a local life that, you know, your community really is where you live. And in many respects, to kind of leave the city that you live in or the region you live in really invites what we would consider, like you hear this language of banditry, that, you know, you walk out of your space and you're no longer protected. You could be taken hostage uh, and ransomed and things like that. So wow. it's, a, it's a dangerous world. <laughs> well, are there, are there lessons we can learn today from the Middle Ages? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I was contemplating this. I was reading a, a text by a French philosopher just last night related to understanding like the Middle Ages and the context of the future. And this author was articulating that maybe as we're at, at this age of the 21st century, we're undergoing a, a repaganization of global society, literally meaning in the sense of religious order is starting to break down. There's less Christianization in the in the world, or at least in the United States and Western Europe, and more acceptance of different dynamics and, and new ideas and new approaches to life. I think what we gather from this kind of idea of learning from the past and in this context of repaganization is that, well, there were many different ways of living during the Middle Ages. So if you were living in Northern Europe, let's say in the Scandinavian regions during the 1100s or 1200s, your life would really be centered around Viking life. And, you know, this is everything from the raiding that we would see into Denmark and England, but also intensive trade relations, the interjection of Norse language actually into the English language, lots of vocabulary and grammar we use actually are adapted into English because of this connectivity. And then also, uh, I think what we learned from that Middle Ages is the ability for folks to kind of adapt. And we don't tend to think of that as something about like the past, that we think we are like this privileged moment of history, that we are the pinnacle of right now, that this is yeah. as good as it gets, right? But maybe not so, that there's lots of change. So as a specialist in Iberia or Spain, what we see from the period of 700 to about 1500 is like 800 years of experimentation of different types of political and religious control, either under Christian rule or Islamic rule. And folks really adapt along the way. You know, they 
changing religions, they're changing the way they live, they change clothing, language adapts. So being in Colorado, you know, we can appreciate these kinds of adaptations. So we know that we see Spanish words in this region, like the word maybe like uh, alcalde, which means like a mayor. And so you might see that in further southern Colorado. And alcalde is actually, it's a, a derivative of Arabic word, meaning, you know, like a local leader. So, you know, that ability to kind of adapt and it comes out of language, uh, and foods and things like that um, really is kind of a hallmark of that age and something that I think we can carry forward with. That's a great point. Well, can you tell us about the Immersive Global Middle Ages virtual tour you're working on? That sounds fascinating. Yeah, it, it could be, I hope. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> you know, uh, it's really, uh, and this is kind of a question back to you, because uh, I, I think it's important to have this kind of conversation as a, as a teaching scholar, you know, the conversation is the most important. So yeah. uh, I might pass back to you first. I mean, what's your experience with like virtual reality and, and that type of technology? I have a very limited experience with it. So I probably would be one of these who would be wide-eyed and impressed by just about anything. I think that the immersion part of this will be incredible for people. So you're hitting on a couple of points that I think are really important. And, and thank you so much for those comments. I think part of what you're getting at, which all of us, I think, feel and know is what is kind of immersive? What is like yeah. virtual reality? So we... In many respects, we already have been experiencing immersive like technology for a good almost uh, 100 years. They're called the movies. Right. <laughs> right. So like yeah. when you go, when we, again, when we used to go to the movie theater, you'd be in this giant theater with other folks witnessing this spectacle on the screen and with a combination of sound and visuals and in you know, a dialogue and storytelling, you kind of fall into that world and, and for maybe an hour or two you you live somewhere else yeah. so that really is what we're looking at now is the next iteration of that and where I kind of think about this is really is a continuum so historians tend to think in continuums long periods a little reference to to movies also might say oh that's related to theater it's actually really an ancient, an ancient way of doing things called the Greek theater and amphitheater. So right. we've been doing this for a long time. All we're kind of really doing now is adding a new kind of way of experiencing that completeness of another world. And so it's really this advent of using virtual reality headsets. So to describe that really, it's the idea of almost like you're putting on glasses or putting on some protective goggles when you know, you're outside and doing some woodworking or something. But on those goggles, what we see is like lenses that are projected images. And what's a little bit different than when some of us were kids and we had 3D glasses with the red and blue lenses and stuff, and you see something on a piece of paper that jumps out, what you're really seeing is a projection on those lenses that really gives the appearance of three-dimensional space. And it's, you know, different angles allow you to see like, oh, I'm seeing a person in front of me, but because my eyes, the way binocular vision works, see at two different angles, we get the perception of something that's three-dimensional. That really is immersive technology. So we'll see all kinds of different headsets, whether that is 
like HTC Vive uh, headsets, Oculus Rifts, all kinds of different systems. And then those immersive technologies then are sometimes they're kind of handheld in the sense that, you know, you can have an iPad or a Microsoft Surface. If I look straight ahead on the screen, it shows me a doorway to another room. But if I tilt to my left, I see, oh, there's a window. I think the important thing to recognize here is that it's just another way of presenting that complete experience with the technology we have today, a hundred years from now, good Lord, who knows what it'll look like. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, how long before we can step into the past via this virtual tour? And you've already touched on this, but how will people be able to access it? So the idea behind this and really the idea behind this NEH kind of project was really, how do we do two things? One is, how do we kind of change our perspective about what that Middle Ages was like? So we, a lot of us kind of traditionally would think about kings and queens and castles and knights and all that type of stuff. And that's all really kind of a European perspective. So how do we broaden that view to understand actually that across the globe during this period that is named like the global Middle Ages, were the other civilizations that were thriving and actually deeply involved with trade. So we see substantial amounts of trade between Africa and Southeast Asia. We see the Mongols and Central Asia migrating out and actually thoroughly dominating Asia, but also parts of Northern Europe and the Middle East. And then even into the Americas, even though there is not that kind of engagement that we see like this transatlantic relationships, although there's forthcoming evidence that's showing that probably Norse peoples actually made it into Greenland, possibly even further into the Americas earlier on via Iceland. And likewise, in the Pacific Islands, we know there are Pacific Island peoples that are making it all the way to Eastern Ireland and further, possibly all the way to South America. So that's the first component of this project is to really say, what is the range of the world and the kind of like the rich tapestry of human culture that exists in this time and then how they're connected. We sought out folks that were doing research on different civilizations. And now we're asking them to join us in the next couple of weeks for the next two years to talk about their research, to talk about, oh, so what was actually happening in Arabia during this time period? And what was the role of women in Arabia or in Tang, uh, China? You know, what were the kind of governmental systems? What was the influence of Buddhism on that civilization? And over the next two to three months, we will start to train these scholars how to actually take their research and build them into virtual models in a software that's known as SketchUp Pro. SketchUp Pro is actually a software made by Trimble that is in, based out of Colorado. And I hope that maybe one of them will listen to this because I've been reaching out to them consistently to say, hey, Trimble, you know, we are using your great architectural product actually to restore and rebuild worlds across the world and have this kind of global content where we're just not talking about the United States or, or even Europe. We're talking about China. We're talking about South Africa. We're talking about the Incan Empire. And so what's kind of fun that's coming is this summer, 2022, we'll bring our first set of scholars, about 14 folks, to Colorado Springs. Well, they will start to showcase the beginnings of their first models. 
in many ways, I think your listeners are museum goers, right? You're like culturally interested. You're, you're engaging your mind. You, you might've left the university a couple of years ago, or maybe a couple of decades ago, but you're still interested in the world around you. And the way we experience that today in many ways is we go to museums, we go to the theater, uh, we travel. And so we look at old museums, we think, uh, remember these things called dioramas and they would show depressions yeah. of life, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, these really, oh, and as a kid, I mean, I'm like, I do you, I'm, I know they're so much fun. Yes. <laughs> you're, you're looking, it's almost like a where's Waldo kind of moment where like you're trying to find out where, where's this person and, you know, so you'll see this. So what will happen this summer, 2022 is our participants will start to showcase little dioramas, and I say little in the sense of probably, you know, house scale, maybe two or three house scales, showing what it was like to see life at that time. So it might be a religious temple in China, and you would be able to walk into it and see some of the artifacts that are there to see kind of representations of people and what, what they're doing. And a real specific case that you can kind of see on our website, which is at grants.uccs.edu, and then backslash IGMA. At our website, you can see an example of some of the work I've done, which is related to Jewish synagogues in Spain. And one of the examples we present there is actually how we were able to reconstruct synagogues that were destroyed in the 1400s as Jews were expelled. But we reconstruct these synagogues and actually reconstitute kind of communal religious life. You can see where the Torah, basically the Old Testament, was stored in a Torah ark, you know, protective like enclosure. And you can see folks up speaking to congregations and visiting. What's different about it now is instead of looking in through the glass, right, and seeing the little the little figurines and the like pieces of bark that look like uh, trees and things like that, actually you walk right into the world yeah. and you can kind of like view and, and stand alongside of, you know, other people that are, that are there at that time. Summer 2022, We'll release this through like social media channels, both through mostly through Twitter at this point, but also through our website at UCCS. And then what we'll start to anticipate is that folks will be able to download this content from sites like Steam. Steam is one of these kind of engines that's used for gaming, but also it's uh, used to deliver kind of all kinds of apps that might be immersive or, or things like that. So folks will be able to kind of download software and actually either view these on their computer or you would be able to download an app and then view it with your goggles and kind of experience these worlds. Then we'll continue these developments for another basically a year and a half. And in fall of 2023, we'll be rolling out probably about 10 virtual worlds that are interconnected, showcasing kind of what was life like, where we started this conversation in the Middle Ages, not just in Europe, but maybe in Turkey or, uh, or you know, Anatolia at that time, or in Southeast Asia or in um, Central Asia. This is really remarkable. And we will want to help spread the word and help our listeners access this. We'll definitely be promoting this heavily. It's my understanding that this project is part of the NEH's Global Middle Ages Institute collaboration. Do I have that correct? Yeah. So. Okay. 
these are your taxpayer dollars at work for you. So <laughs> I, I kind of say that a little bit in jest, but also in a great deal of appreciation. In this day and age, when there are so few resources for so many needs, whether those are healthcare, whether that's education, whether it's just the traditional roads and bridges, there's not enough money to go around. But through the generosity of American taxpayers, we were successful. And specifically, I'd like to acknowledge my colleague, Dr. Lynn Ramey at Vanderbilt University, who's a, a medievalist as well, a French professor, where we are benefited from this opportunity to create an institute around kind of like, like a more inclusive global middle ages and technology. It really is a unique idea because the, the way the NEH operates is that it, it, it basically makes calls out to the world and really to American scholars to say, what kinds of things should we be doing in terms of technologies? How do we stay competitive? How does the humanity remain relevant in this day and age where all we hear about is cybersecurity? I wish, and, and sometimes I, I wish academic leadership could, could appreciate this, you know, that old adage, which is, you know, we can build a bomb, but should we build a bomb? Is that, is that a good idea? And that is the place of the humanities. That's the place of an institute like this, which is we should build, we can build immersive worlds, but kind of what are our responsibilities actually as we create these immersive worlds? Great information, Roger. We love it. You mentioned Vanderbilt University. Are there other partners in this collaboration? Yes. So this is what's really, really exciting. All you have to do is look at the news today. And there's kind of this perpetuation of the myth inside of Silicon Valley. And I actually started my career in Silicon Valley and I think tank known as the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California. So Oddly enough, before I was an academic historian, I was a futurist. <laughs> but the ethos and the mythology of Silicon Valley is that you have these great men or great women who are leading society into a great future. And they're kind of independent and singular. And that just isn't the case. It isn't the case at all. It's actually is only through the collaborative effort of many people with many different ideas, competing, collaborating, mixing, that we get something. On our webpage, which you'll see is actually, we're bringing in uh, 14 renowned experts from across the world to help us convey this knowledge. So Lynn Ramey, again, is she is a professor of French and the faculty director of the Center for Digital Humanities at Vanderbilt University. But alongside of them, you know, we're bringing in folks like uh, one of my former professors, Geraldine Hing from the University of Texas at Austin. She's a professor of English. And interesting enough, you know, the real technologists in the humanities are actually literature folks. They're oh, impressive. Really? Yeah, wow. yeah. So you see Italian literature specialists, English specialists, Spanish specialists. They actually are leading the way. They're dragging us as, as, <laughs> as historians into the future. The idea is really is to kind of like bring this panorama of different ways of creating immersion and then presenting it to our scholars to say, okay, how would you like to implement this? And in some senses, what we've done, which is I think quite special, is we've entered in with a very accessible technology. 
And this is where like, I, I will make a, a point about the challenges of, of working with virtual reality. I work with a couple of different platforms, everything from Unity, which is a game engine that's used for like, you know, all kinds of games like Assassin's Creed. I use uh, lots of movie making software like uh, Apple's Final Cut Pro and things like that that are used to, to produce films. But then we chose SketchUp Pro because it's actually a relatively easy software for folks to, man, uh, to manage and develop. And in fact, in my own courses at UCCS, just within two weeks, most of my students can master the essential elements of the software so that they can create virtual environments. For instance, right now, a group of my students and I, we've developed a, a model of a medieval city of Placencia, Spain in Western Spain. And we've been populating it with the synagogue, with the cathedral, with houses, with different dioramas of different individuals. One of the great examples that I love to tell about the Middle Ages is about a, a gentleman by the name of Yusuf Castaño. Yusuf, which is Joseph, in the early 1400s lived in the Jewish part of town, although it wasn't a ghetto. Uh, Christian knights lived in the same region, and he lived adjacent to the oldest church in the city. Well, Yusuf had a pretty important job uh, in this world. He was a chainmail maker and, and a plate armorer. And so if you start to like put the pieces together, you kind of start to understand something completely new about the Middle Ages. So even in Europe, we see lots of interconnectivities. And what's coming along this pathway is as we integrate these other 14 scholars into our work and produce their work and promote it, we're going to find all these other kinds of really interesting stories too. We'll, we'll learn about like, again, um, you know, Buddhist uh, monks who populated Mongol like operations, like governmental systems and things like that. <laughs> That's very exciting stuff. But you did mention your students and I wanted to just circle back about them. Can you give us some other examples of the digital narratives that they're creating for the, in your courses? Sure. One of our graduate students in the master's in history program, I would just make a point that at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, we have a vibrant master's of history program. We uh, actually are probably one of the largest ones in the region, uh, approximately 70 MA students who work on basically the equivalent of a global MA. They work in Europe, they work in America, they work in the Middle East, all different types of topics. But in this one case, uh, Mr. Gavin Rogers it, uh, led a group of undergraduate students to replicate and tell the story of that synagogue of Placentia. So we don't know the exact format of the synagogue that was in this little city of Placentia. We know that it was covered up by a monastery. And then there are references in the archival record to its Torah arc, some of its architectural elements and things like that. So in the process of like trying to triangulate actually where to place the synagogue, we had to actually start dealing with topography. And so Gavin, you know, uh, was able to gather archaeological reports from Spain to kind of understand the site a little bit better, as well as hydraulic maps. And so this was interesting, so water maps for the region. Gavin and John Bowles and other students were able to assemble this synagogue down to the finest detail. So this is the kind of things that are kind of playing out is that the students kind of through their own curiosity are finding like, well, 
where do we place this? Well, where's the water coming from? Or where did people live in relationship to that? Who was in there? And it kind of spurs along this traditional kind of academic research of like, you know, looking at archaeological reports, looking at primary sources like manuscripts, but then also spurs them to say, instead of only producing kind of a written product, we're going to create the virtual products alongside of them so that we can literally see and read about the things that they're creating. That's super exciting. And just two other ones I'll just mention, another group did work on vineyards and wine production. And so we see, again, this is like the strange world that the Middle Ages is, those vineyards they were creating and, and the processing facilities, one of those was actually owned by a Muslim family in the 1400s in Spain. There's kind of a problem with that. So you know, if you're a devout Muslim, and, and most Muslims were very, very devout during the Middle Ages, just like Christians, uh, you, you can't drink wine. <laughs> it's, it's religiously prohibited. So the idea that we have a, a Muslim wine producer that doesn't necessarily partake of his own work, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. But, you know, these are the stories they're kind of pulling out. Speaking of your students, do you have a sense of what some of your history students go on to do at once they graduate? Could you give us a couple examples that stick out? I want to approach this question delicately in two ways. One is there's this kind of traditional kind of perspective about the humanities. So the humanities are the languages, philosophy, history, these, you know, traditional kind of components of the, uh, of the basic kind of way of thinking that we've had since the, the scholastic movement in the 1200s in Europe. And often we think like there's kind of really no place for these things anymore. That's fine to go to a museum. It's fine to go to travel and experience another part of the world, but you know, that's leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really happening really differently now in the humanities and what I see in my students is, is, is something quite exceptional, which is they are combining both like, you know, the robustness of intellectual life and rigor of the humanities, which is about intensive investigation. The classic idea behind the humanities is that, you know, you're promoting an argument that you you decide, I think what the evidence shows is this is occurring. So in the case of like the use of Castaño, you know, I've made an argument that, you know, Christian knights trusted him and trusted him as a Jew because they were producing his armor. Well, that's an argument. Well, I have to back that up with evidence uh, through whether that's primary or secondary evidence, which is the original sources or other scholarly work. So we see some folks that move into kind of governmental and private sector kind of archival worlds where they're blending these things. Another person that I can think of, John Bowles, who is a veteran, is actually at Fort Carson and working as a specialist in their museum collections. So we see museums, we see archives, we see them in different institutions. Uh, The other place I see them is really as teachers. So this is probably the most exciting place, which is a lot of our history students enter into uh, secondary education, high school education, and then also at the community college level. Mm -hmm. And in this respect, uh, what I see my students doing there is bringing 
and this is why the immersive stuff is really important, is bringing these kinds of new technologies to their younger students. Because we know we have to compete for hearts and minds of, of young people. I knew that there's something special here when I showed my niece, who is uh, eight years old, how we were generating virtual worlds. And she asked me, you're doing that in school? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, that's the, that's what we do at the university. We're creating these worlds. She was like, I, I'd, I'd like to do that <laughs> alongside of, she, yeah, alongside of she was saying, now, can we get back to the 3D printing part of that? And can we produce some more like you know, cat figurines? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today, Roger. Where can our listeners find you online? Oh, thank you so much, Emily, for asking the question. Two places. First of all, you can just do a quick Google search for immersive global middle ages. And one of the first hits you will see is at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. And the hyperlink is, you know, grants.uccs.edu backslash IGMA, Immersive Global Middle Ages. But a, a quick search for just Immersive Global Middle Ages, you'll find us. And then we also are starting to generate a Twitter feed to share out a research that we're doing. And that is uh, also Immersive Global Middle Ages. And we are at Immersive underscore GMA. Immersive underscore GMA. And that's where actually would be a great place for folks if you, if you kind of follow us on that line you'll be able to encounter like all the little stories that we're finding from our uh, collaborative researchers and where you can start to download virtual objects as we create them. See You on the Air is hosted by Emily Davies, produced by Kathy Buton, and recorded and engineered by me, John Arnold. Email us your questions and suggestions at ontheair at cu.edu. We'll see you on the air next time. University of Colorado.